Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode number three of the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast. I'm Chad Noonan. Really, really excited for this episode. I'm excited for you to hear these interviews. They were both great. In just a bit, I'm going to be speaking with Adam Grow. Adam, of course, you know him as the cash cab guy, but he's also on the board of directors of CanCom. Now, CanCom is the foundation for Canadian comedy. We talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about cash cab. Uh, and that show and how it was produced and how it was made some really really inside stuff that that was really cool we talk about his comedy career his influences and where he came from super excited for you to hear the adam grow interview i did want to remind you that the nominees lists are coming up real soon for the canadian comedy hall of fame we're just four ish weeks away from hearing who the nominees are going to be and you only have until february 15th to join the Canada Comedy Hall of Fame and become a lifetime member for just $25. You can become a member after February 15th, but you're not going to get this deal. You're not going to get the $25 deal that allows you to vote on this great list of nominees, which I have seen. There are some really tough decisions on this list, and I'm excited who the people will choose. Before I talk to the cash cab guy, Adam Grow, uh, I got a great interview here with Joel Cohen. Now, Joel has been a producer on The Simpsons since 2002. He's from Calgary. He's produced some Canadian shows, including Crash Canyon, which we get into. We talked about all kinds of things. We talked about Canada wrestling, uh, Stampede Wrestling specifically. Uh, we talked about his brother, who he thinks should be in the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. I got a little inside scoop on, on how they make The Simpsons episodes and, and what he thinks of the other writers on the show. It was a great chat. I could have talked to him for hours. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, Joel Cohen. Your brother on last week on the show, um, and he got me connected with you. And your brother said growing up, his big influence was SCTV. That was Canadian comedy. He he actually said, uh, next to my Monty Python, it's the best sketch show of all time. Do you are you are you in agreement with your brother in that sentiment? I'll take a very risky move and agree with my brother. Okay, uh, okay. I mean, you know, we, he's a little bit older than I am, so obviously he was uh, influential in exposing me to a lot of great stuff. If we're talking about Canadian comedy, I was even thinking about it a little bit before this, and absolutely, SCTV um, was really mind-opening and uh, and amazing, and probably still holds up when you watch those old skits. They're still great. I mean, so many legends come out of that show. When you think of Eugene Levy and, and Marty Short and, and all them, Candy. definitely. Yeah, I, I fell yeah. in love with John Candy, who I always think of as one of the great comedic actors of all time. John Candy was actually, he was in the uh, inaugural class of the Canadian uh, Comedy Hall of Fame back in 2000. So so he's already in. So I'm hoping more SCTV people join him. I actually watched Cool Runnings, rewatched it. The oh, other wow. Night. Hilarious. Yeah, it is. It's a funny movie. It really has nothing to do with bobsled when you watch it. But it's, No, it's, I know. <laughs> but out of respect, the hot, the football pool I'm in is called Pool Runnings. Out of oh, a, I love it. Hat, the Cool Runnings. Yeah, yeah. Do you win a lucky egg if you uh, win the no, pool? No, we should. We yeah, but that was also we're from Calgary, and that was also the Calgary Olympics that year, right? With the Jamaican bobsled team, right? Yep, correct. Yep, the Calgary yeah. Olympics. Eddie the Eagle also Eddie flew. Eagle, Alberto Tomba Bamba or Bamba Tomba or whatever there was. Yeah, there was yeah. Katarina Witt. I remember it all. It was it was a big Olympics for sure. Yeah, um, so you actually went to the University of, of Alberta. How did you make that jump from 
I think you took science in school, correct? To writing on a show, The Simpsons and a Canadian coming to LA. Like what was that jump to, um, from, yeah. from that to writing? My dad uh, luckily had, because my grandfather was a citizen, a US citizen. So my dad got, a, got us all green cards uh, right before I turned 18, which was uh, important. So I was working in Toronto, as I mentioned, for a film distribution company. And I kind of got offered, I have an MBA from York University. And then I got offered a business job working for Turner Broadcasting um, in LA. Um, and I thought, you know, why not? Why not take a chance? And then once I got to LA, I'd already been working a little bit trying to be a writer in, in Canada, but comedy writing was pretty tough for TV, at least at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got down there and through my brother, I met Kathy Griffin, the comedian. Um, and and my, I started writing jokes for her for a bunch of award shows like the Billboard Music Awards, American Music Awards. And then um, she was nice enough to kind of refer me or give me a reference to work on the show she was on, which is Suddenly Susan, which right. I, I very kindly referred to as the worst show ever to be on television. And uh, so I worked there for a year. And then my, my one of my bosses, the showrunner, there's two showrunners, but this wonderful woman named Maria Semple, her boyfriend was a Simpsons writer. And she really put a good word in for me. And that's how I made the jump. That's awesome. And then, so The Simpsons, I remember, there was one quote and I wrote it down here. At one point you had a Canadian influence on the show, but now you feel like you have Stockholm syndrome, right? Writing on the show. Is the Canadian sense of humor, is it that much different from the States, from the American? Like when you go into a writer's room with other Canadians and American writers, do you feel like um, there's a different sentiment on humor there? It's interesting, right? Even now and for a long time, I'm one of three Canadian writers. Um, so even just looking at, I would say the three of us all have sort of different senses of humor, although we all kind of contribute to this Simpsons, to the Simpsons so we must have something that's in common. Um, so I don't know that there's a pure Canadian sense of humor. Uh, I think it's specific and there's certainly Americans that have what would probably be defined as a Canadian sense of humor by Canadians. Um, I think it's just more specific about the, where you grew up and the stuff you were drawn to. Uh, you know, a lot of people love British comedy, which is what a lot of people point to in Canada as the inspiration for their sense of humor. So I'm dispelling a myth or whatever, but I don't know that there is a unique Canadian sense of humor. It's kind of fascinating that there's three of you from Canada. I mean, our population's not that big, but so many great Canadian writers, performers, producers, everything come out of uh, come out of Canada. And, yeah, and I want to be clear though that the, these two are not great. Like you say, okay. great. Okay. These are these are the worst Canadian writers that somehow right. stumbled into this job. I'm I'm spectacular, and yep. I think we average out at mediocre because of that. Okay, so that's where that's where the line is drawn in there. I, I get it. Yeah, that totally yeah. that totally makes sense to me. I really want that to be unedited on air. Exactly that quote. No, oh, for sure. Yeah, it will be, and we'll we'll tag them in Twitter or whatever yeah, we got to okay. do. So okay. so it Thank makes you. so they're aware of it. So uh, The Simpsons was kind of like that first adult animated comedy. I mean, there was other ones, but that was the one that was really geared towards adults. It played in prime time. Um, there's been tons before it. There's going to be more. There's still some on the air, but none of them have had the longevity of The Simpsons. What is that longevity? What do you think brings, you know, The Simpsons beyond since 89? Well, part of it is it's just become iconic because it was the first of its type. And I think it just became so formative for so many people, including myself. So there's some sort of warmth to The Simpsons. First of all, the characters are designed great or written great. Um, so they just, when you turn it on, it's been 34 years now 
uh, we're working on season 34. So it's become so comfortable and such a mainstay of our, of our viewing um, that I think that's a big part of its longevity. Uh, but even shows like Family Guy, I think they're maybe in season 25 or something. I have no idea. But it just goes to show if something connects um, in animation, it's got such a lifespan longer than live action. Um, and then back to The Simpsons, it's no thanks to me. I joined in season 12, but it's incredibly well written, incredibly well designed, incredibly well animated. Um, it's the same cast, which is shocking for 34 years uh, for the most part. Um, so I just think it, it was very high quality. And it's because of its warmth and it's evergreen. It's, it's become an evergreen. And I'm backtracking to add one last thing. It sounds odd to say about The Simpsons or about an adult animated show, but it's a little sappy or heartwarming and tender and emotional. And as much as it's like hilarious jokes, hilarious jokes, hilarious jokes, there's often a lot of stuff that just people really connect to on an emotional level. Um, and that makes a big difference as well. People have been connecting to those characters for years. When you write a show, uh, as opposed to a live action show, an animated show, when you're writing animated show, do you like that there's really no limits in what you write? It's you can, you know, make up anything you want. You can have a, a plane crash and you know that they don't have to imitate it. Is that just, is that freedom kind of liberating in the writer's room? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fun. Uh, like you said, if we just want to make a joke about something happening in Paris with no budget concern whatsoever, we can cut to a scene in Paris because it costs pretty much the same to draw Paris as it does to draw Springfield. So it's great. It's super freeing. Um, and yeah, it's it's a it's a way of thinking that is unique to animation, and and I've come to really love it. This might be a little inside baseball, but I was just wondering. Um, watched an episode, I think it was from last season, where you had George Stephanopoulos on. And what comes kind of first? Do they get the guest, and you have to write around it, or do you guys write the episode and then go after somebody like George Stephanopoulos? Generally, it's the latter, where we we think, oh my god, it'd be great to have a guest star here. Mm -hmm. um, occasionally, um, we'll, we will think of a voice as we're writing and try to get them. And then of course have to alter it if we don't get them a little bit. So I, that, I guess the quick answer is a mix. Sometimes we'll, we'll write it and hope we get them. Or sometimes, um, we'll just be down the road a little bit and be like, wow, that'd be so cool if we got this person to jump in here as a guest cast. And if we get them, we put them in. If we don't, we don't. So it's of course, all the, the greatest Canadian guest of all time was probably Brett the Hitman Hart. Um, I don't know if you were there for that, but I, I was a wrestling kid growing up and watched The Simpsons. So when I saw uh, Bret Hart and my my worlds were colliding on, on that episode. Well, uh, I'm from Calgary, which is where Stampede yeah, Wrestling exactly. was and the whole Hart family. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up with Stampede Wrestling and Dynamite Kid and, and uh, all those guys. Uh, so when Bret the Hitman Hart, I don't know if I was there when he did a voice, but he became good friends with our casting director. And like 20 times a year, I just see him walking around and talk to him for like, you know, 10 minutes about Calgary, but whatever. So I wouldn't say we're friends, but I, uh, we, I'd say I have a passing acquaintance with Brett the Hitman Hart. I'm jealous. I think it was like 94, the WWF was in my town and Bret oh. Hart missed his flight and I never got to see him. He was going to fight, I don't know, Macho Man or something. It's one, well, I know, so I never got to see him wrestle, which was, uh, which was a, you know, disheartening for me. I know this um, is a wrestling podcast, so let me talk another wrestling story. I love that, wrestling stories. Go. Yeah. The whole Hart family, of course, lived in Calgary, and there's a bunch of brothers, as you know. Mm -hmm. And I think his name was Chris Hart. I, I might be getting that wrong. Who worked at, when he wasn't a wrestler biting people's eyebrows off on Friday night or Saturday or whatever it was. 
he was also a substitute teacher. So he actually taught me wrestling in oh junior high school. Of course, it was like Greco-Roman wrestling, but yeah. he was a teacher teaching us wrestling. And we're like, aren't you going to teach us to jump off the ropes? And, you know, Jimmy, the Superfly snook at somebody. But no, it was just, you know, Commonwealth style wrestling. But it was very cool. Well, even in the dungeon where Stu Hart, you know, famously taught all these these wrestlers it wasn't really professional wrestling what he was teaching them he was teaching them how to take pain right stretch them it was different like holds and stuff um yeah i mean the the bret hart documentary is a great example yeah. of that. no one taught me how to take pain i, I missed that lesson I, you, no, that day, was... i'm just crying and and you know trying to kill myself that doesn't happen yeah. chris hart didn't uh didn't bring that on to you that was not um <laughs> uh, I, I do want to talk about, so you've kind of, you, you were on the Simpsons for a year, and then you created a Canadian kind of based animated show um, that, that was based in, in Alberta. That was Crash Canyon. You had people like Patrick McKenna and Jennifer Irwin. Um, Patrick McKenna actually hosted the Canadian Comedy uh, Hall of Fame induction at, or Canadian Comedy Awards um, in the early 2000s. So we have lots of footage of him um, on our website. Um, what, what was that show kind of like your your love letter to Canada and just like I want to what was kind of the creativity around that show yeah I mean I actually was brought in sort of at the 11th hour 11 okay. hour uh it was a if my memory serves me correctly it was a kid's show it was an idea for a kid's show um that this was brought to this company called Breakthrough Entertainment um and they said let's see if we can do this as adult animation um, and I was very friendly with a woman that worked there that's this great sort of producer named Joan Lambert. Um, and then she brought it to me and I said, yeah, I can help with this. So I was working on The Simpsons the entire time, but we brought in a kind of a showrunner, another great guy named Greg Lawrence. And so Greg Lawrence was kind of running the show. I was sort of helping with scripts and stuff as best I could from LA. Um, and then we got this amazing cast and did whatever we did, 26 episodes in total, I can't even remember. Um, and some are good, some are not so good, but it was super fun to do. It was fun to write Canadian jokes. Um, and I've often tried and still have some projects in the pipeline that are, you know, hopefully be done in Canada and maybe even more of a love letter to Canada or using Canadian, an animated show set in Canada, um, some stuff on the horizon, hopefully. Yeah, Patrick McKenna, too, people that don't know, he was uh, Harold, I think, and was the name of the character in the Red Green Show, um, yeah. one, of, one of the best Canadian shows, you know, comedies ever. Um, and I like when you said that the, uh, Crash Canyon is uh, jokes uh, only hosers would get. And a lot of them were like that inside Canadian jokes, which I love. Um, Maybe too inside, but... That's, yeah, yeah that's, that's great. Um, so we're getting set to release our list of nominees for the 2022 um, induction class in the Canadian Hall of Fame. I'm just, um, as I'm going through these interviews, I'm asking, you know, who do you think has to be kind of on that list um, moving forward? I know you probably don't know who's in or who's out, but what are what are just some names that you think are like absolutely must these people deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? They could be performers, creators, kind of, kind of anything. I'm afraid the ones I'll say are probably maybe very obvious, but like I would hope most of the cast of SCTV, as you said, is in. Uh, like Lauren Michaels, of course, I suspect hopefully is probably in. Uh, these are all, I'm thinking of all big names. I'm trying to think of people that maybe no one would know of that deserve recognition. Um, and I'm happy to take suggestions as well. <laughs> I mean, it'd be nice for some writers, you know, like my brother has had a pretty distinguished career and he's, he's I don't know what, what qualifies somebody as a writer to get in. Um, there's a guy named Dan Signer who's written a lot of kids shows. Yep. 
Chuck Tatham, if you don't know, Chuck Tatham's worked in American television. Chuck's coming on next week, actually. So I'll get to Chuck to talk. Tell Chuck that I said he should be in the Canadian Hall of Fame and (laughs) And, leave it really hanging out there. for. for Yeah. And what do I do if Chuck doesn't say your name when I ask him the same question? Do I? I just don't think you are the episode. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but uh, I mean, there's a there's a whole slew, and I'm I'm missing so many people that are great um, that deserve to be there. There's a guy named uh, Norm Hiscock, I think, is another Canadian mm-hmm. writer. So yep. like all these people that it's a shame that I mentioned them because they went to the states and had success, but um, they are Canadian, and I hope they maybe had some Canadian um, kickback. I guess I, that's it. I try to think of people that maybe aren't as obvious as as everyone else might think. Yeah. But thanks. Thanks a lot for joining me, Joel. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you and, and I love talking Canadian comedy and, and anything Canada, even if, even if it's pro wrestling. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Great. Well, I, I hope to be back, uh, just for the wrestling show. We can talk about that. Oh, totally. Canada only wrestling show. We'll talk heart foundation, Chris Jericho, oh, all of it. Calgary so. only wrestling. Just very yeah, specific. Just Calgary. Yeah. Perfect. Calgary. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thanks, Joel. Big thanks again to Joel Cohen from The Simpsons for joining me. Uh, he, he was awesome. Um, I hope we I hope we can do that again. And I can't wait for the Canadian Stampede Wrestling podcast. I think that would be a big hit. Maybe a little niche. Maybe a little bit of a niche market, but a big hit. Um, love all those Simpsons inside knowledge, too. That was, that was a lot of fun to ask him those questions. Uh, next up, I have Adam Grove. Now, you know Adam as the cash cab guy. But Adam is so much more. He's done stand-up. He's a host. The Adam Bro Quiz Show is his own creation, um, and it's great for any corporate event. You can find all the details on that at adamgrow.com. But Adam is also a big proponent and advocate for Canadian comedy. He's a member of the board of directors on CanCom. Um, He gets into all the different organizations and ways that he supports Canadian comedy in this, including being part of the team that got comedy recognized as an art form, even taking it as far as a trip to the House of Commons. So here it is, my interview with Adam Grow. So what was the, what was the harder city to drive in, Toronto or Vancouver when you were filming Cash Cab? Well, I'd say we only did one season in Vancouver and it wasn't difficult in terms of navigating traffic in Vancouver. What was challenging in Vancouver was there's just not as many people hailing a cab as you have in Toronto. And in fact, one of the reasons that we weren't able to go to many other Canadian cities, cities like Edmonton or um, Ottawa, people actually, you know, rarely hail cabs in many Canadian cities. It's always calling. So you can't have that element of surprise to the show. So we had to just manage that. As far as navigating the traffic, I have to be honest, what, I mean, I trained as a as a cabbie in both cities, mm-hmm. got the special license in both cities, and that was a big make work to go back and forth and get a new driver's license because you're only allowed to have one provincial driver's license in Canada at a time. So I had to surrender, get, surrender, get again. All the behind so, the scenes things. Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. So the, the the challenging part for cabbies is different than what I faced. Once I surprised people and they agreed to be on the show, it was very forgiving. I mean, I wasn't like A to B was no longer my tips rely on this, right? A to B yeah. was this is going to be fun and it's going to be good. So if there was traffic, it was like very forgiving. So yeah, I think that um, in Vancouver, growing up in Vancouver, I would say on behalf of drivers there, one of the things that's very different in Vancouver that they don't have 
as many of the big super highways, uh, like the 400 and the 404, but they have so many bridges and narrow bridges that it is rush hour in the lower mainland in Vancouver is crazy, but we never had to deal with that in cash cab. I've spent some time in Vancouver, but have never dr- drove there. So I don't, I never had to worry about that. So, um, you're from, you were born in New York, raised in Vancouver. What was kind of your growing up experience with comedy? Um, you, you mentioned to me before we, we started that your, your, uh, dad was a doctor. So obviously your, your parent, your parents weren't in entertainment at all. So what kind of, what kind of sparked that interest for you? Well, my dad is a retired medical doctor. My mom is a retired journalist, author, editor, and columnist, uh, mostly with the Toronto Star. So there, there, you know, when you write, there's a little bit of creative juices there. My stepmom, who is has been part of my life for most of my life since I was, you know, not even quite 10, she's an artist and continues to be an artist in her late 80s. So there's a little bit of an influence, but I wouldn't say, I mean, my family was shocked when I started to perform and do things. And, and that goes back to my roots in grade school and then throughout high school and throughout university. They're like, you don't do this at home. Like, I'm not trying to be the, you know, the person, the center of attention at home. I really was low, uh, below the radar at home. And so I think for me, the appeal before comedy really sank in was just having an impact on audiences and getting a reaction from audiences. And so that's come most prominently throughout my life, even just hosting and emceeing events where you're not necessarily trying to be the star or the feature act or crack people up, but you have little moments. Right. And so for me, it was always about that, but it was years before I really committed seriously towards exploring comedy. My first experience with being funny was a skit as I'm sure it is for most people in the comedy business, for my classmates in elementary school, and we must have been in grade five, uh, something like that. And I remember we were doing it uh, the first time we did it with me, me and my friends, and I kind of, you know, directed it and coordinated. It was a classic camp skit. It was nothing original, but, uh, you know, I kind of orchestrated the whole thing. It's just a little guy. And I remember doing it for, for the first time, and our other friends and classmates who weren't in the skit were laughing so hard, I thought they were making fun of us. I thought they were fake laughing. I've I've never seen. And so that early memory of comedy, I'm sure imprinted, but it wasn't until first year university that I ever did stand up. I had throughout high school, I was like, I was the the person on student council making morning announcements and hosting events and stuff like that. So I was an MC, but I never did stand up per se. So I was writing writing little bits and that, that translated into my radio career. Eventually Mm -hmm. you're you're always like when you're hosting, you're not a stand up comedian as the morning show person, but you are making little bits like, you know, kind of creating a little prepping. Yeah. But I I didn't try stand up comedy until first year university. And then I started doing amateur clubs uh, throughout my you know, four years uh, at the University of Toronto. And then never, and then I pursued radio. I didn't even pursue stand-up. Stand-up was like, there's no way. I'm Who has a career in stand-up? So it wasn't like I really had that early influence for comedy. It was always just about connecting with audiences in, in some shape or form. And obviously humor was a part of that. Were you watching uh, any sketch comedy shows growing up that might've influenced you? Was that like something that was on your TV regular? No, I, I, I always feel it's a liability as a professional comedian and now it's been over 30 years that I I am not like many of my contemporaries who 
are encyclopedias of mm -hmm. stand-ups and sketch and, and grew up on SCTV and, uh, you know, but I definitely had comedic influences. And, you know, John Ritter in Three's Company, uh, you know, I, I, I was forced to watch a lot of shows because I had old, I was the youngest of older siblings. So I watched Love Boat, Little House on the Prairie. And I, I'm dating you, Chad, you don't even know these shows, but like Three's Company. So I got like a little bit of the classic sitcom, but what really resonated to me was John Ritter's physical comedy right. and his moments and other comedians like Bob Newhart and Johnny Carson. So I never really, you know, keyed in on comedy as a profession i keyed in on their subtle wry moments either you know big physical moments or those moments like the pregnant pauses and just kind of letting a moment sit and that to me was priceless when i would see stuff like that but i have to admit like my those influences uh and those are non-canadian of course uh if i have to think of canadian influences it's not hard obviously for me uh, a comedian like howie mandel Mm -hmm. uh, throughout my career, for me, as I started to be more serious about uh, professional comedy, I look at Howie and I go, he was to me, like he, he did comedy. He sold out big arenas. Like you never saw that from a Canadian. And he was doing dramatic roles like St. Elsewhere and emceeing, and then eventually hosting shows like, uh, you know, deal or no deal and mm -hmm. still is hosting to me. That's the, that's the versatility that I always aspired for. Right. So when I look at influences like that, it wasn't so much his style. I wasn't silly and zany like Howie Mandel, but I loved his trajectory and what he continues to do. And so that really resonated uh, with me, but I, you know, but when I watch stuff like uh, Canadian iconic sketch shows like uh, Kids in the Hall and SCTV, you know, I'd never really have done sketch. I, at the closest I've ever done is Second City Workshops, which I think are extremely valuable. It's just not my core competency. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, it's about drawing out those little moments uh, and being in awe of the vast universe of characters and personas that comedy artists bring to the table. And so even though that's not my repertoire, when I hit the stage, how can I manifest that for in the context of me? I'm not right. playing characters, but there's going to be times when I'm hosting an event, even where I have to shift gears to a poignant moment. And, you know, I might authentically believe in the cause or the poignant moment at a corporate event where I've opened the show with humor and I have to shift gears, but you do have to use your performing and acting talent to make that shift in front of 900 people in a banquet hall or online at an event with thousands of people watching, you have to tap in to that skill. So that's what I really drew from watching sketch was their ability to shift and commit, oh, like the commitment of, uh, of people to their characters, uh, you know, without <laughs> breaking faith. And I know people love it, like in this line uh, and stuff like that, when Colin Mockery is, they break character a little bit, it's yeah. kind of like yeah. those gems. But still, I, um, the professionalism and artistry for them to commit to characters is, is inspiring, even if I don't do that type of art. Your versatility in hosting, I've watched a lot of clips over the past week, like preparing for this of your, of your hosting, but your versatility is something to be admired, I think, as somebody who's been in radio. Was it radio that gave you those skills, um, that versatility? Because I find like, um, I always say like radio is kind of one of those weird things. I went to college for radio there was 50 kids in my class uh, who started and there's probably three of them that are actually on air and radio now, but a lot of them are doing really cool things that radio gave them skills to do. I agree 100%. And not everybody who works in radios for, 
not everybody who works in radio for a short period or a long period of time brings the same skill set or the same interests and then the same takeaways. But especially in small market radio, where you typically have to start, if you're going to work in radio, you have to do more than one thing as a part of your job. And so eventually, after about five or six years of full time radio, by that time, even then, by the time I was in the big smoke in Toronto doing swing work, I had been a full-time morning show host in smaller and medium markets. Mm -hmm. And even by the time I ended up in the big smoke and filled in for, you know, Cooper on, uh, on Easy Rock at the time, which is now Boom, uh, which was to me like, I can't even believe I'm getting this opportunity. That was the only time in my history of radio that someone else was operating the board. Other than that, I'm, you're, as an on-air personality in radio, for the most part, you are producing your own show as you host it. And you're writing your own bits as you produced and hosted. And then you're asked to do community events. And not every radio person likes doing this, but I loved when I got asked, will you host our fundraiser? Yes, like everything that came across. So mm -hmm. all of that skill set um, over a period of time, you can go to the 10,000 hours and Gladwell if you want, but whether you agree with his philosophy and, and the data or not, you can't argue with the fact that over a long period of time, when you're doing all of those diverse skills, it's not going to stick with you. And I think about not only other critical junctures in my career that radio contributed to, but I think about the last 22, 23 months when right. as a, as a live performing artist, for the most part, if I'm not making a show like cash cab, uh, I'm performing in comedy clubs or theaters or venues or at corporate events, which is my bread and butter. And it was before cash cab. And so when all of a sudden in March, 2020, the pandemic was declared and, everything live disappeared, like evaporated. I was like, okay, what do I do now? Shifting gears to be able to perform online. Not only do you have to produce your own show, which I do a highly produced show. I can do a turnkey event, produce it in my own virtual studio, live stream to simultaneous other platforms, operate my third party app on second screen simultaneously with people in my a la cash cab studio experience at the same time. These two hands and one foot is what I do. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. could even like, you know, like, you know, I've got like the whole environment set up. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. You, know, you don't see that on uh, obviously on the, on the audio part of this, but to be able to do that, the radio roots were absolutely crucial. And I know a yeah. lot of, hardworking, creative, funny artists in the comedy industry that were not able to make that transition because it's not their comfort zone. And then the last piece, which you know for sure about radio is that when you're performing live on radio, you've got that live adrenaline, like the mic is on, right? And there's no turning back, but there's no feedback. You don't get an audience reaction like comedy, which is the complete opposite side of the spectrum. And stand-up comedy, you know within about 10 seconds, if you've got your audience, it's startling. Whereas in yeah. radio, you have to do a lot of the theater of the mind. How am I doing? How am I communicating? And you, you know, the tricks in radio are to imagine one particular target audience and then extrapolate from there. So to be able to perform online when I'm doing either stand up or hosting an event where I might have nobody on screen with me, or maybe just a handful. And I know 5,000 people across Canada are watching. How do I communicate on screen that's gonna resonate with somebody that I, I'm getting zero, I don't, I'm not even seeing any chat. I know nothing. Yeah. yeah. And not everybody can make that transition. And radio is 100%. Uh, no second takes in radio either, right? No second takes, you, you, you go live and yeah. Well, I mean, there's voice tracking yeah. and stuff now, but. Yeah, um, well, I mean, by the time I finished, I was working with computers and doing voiceovers and running and I, and I, I didn't find that as inspiring, no, but it's no. definitely part of the industry now for sure.
You worked a little bit with a, a group of people connected with Liberal MP Julie DeBruzen. Can you speak a little bit about stand-up and how it wasn't recognized as an art form here in Canada? She spoke in the House of Commons and kind of where that is at now. I'm not sure if it is recognized now as an art form. Well, it's apropos, and I know it's not good form to um, date stamp a podcast because if you're listening right now to the Comedy Hall of Fame podcast and it's the year 2023 and Adam Groh, cash cab guy, is talking about a momentous day in history, which is January 31st, 2022. Forgive me. But I have to say it's apropos because today we officially have completed the first ever national funding grants for Canadian comedians. That's awesome. Never been done before in Canada, officially done today. And if you think about a comedy nation and, and some of the comedy icons, Canadian and otherwise, but especially Canadian, we're known as a comedy nation. Canada has a comedy humor brand and there's never been a national organization distributing funds to comedians for the comedy work that they do. And so that narrative started years ago with the leadership and, um, uh, and passion of Sandra Badalini and the formation of the Canadian Association of Stand-Up Comedians, which I was on, I was, I co-founded with her and a handful of other people. Monty Scott, for instance, uh, was one of the first people on board. He's still the president of CASC. At least last time I checked, I've been immersed in you know, the pandemic. So CASC is still doing amazing advocacy. And when Julie DeBruzen stood on the floor of the House of Commons to read the petition that Sandra got her to sponsor, I was there. You, you were there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I'm not, we were crying. Uh, it was absolutely powerfully emotion, standing ovation. And of course, that was a huge uh, milestone. Many comedians who were even supporting what Cask was doing at the time had significant doubts that it would ever get that far. And so it was verbally recognized as an art form, but what didn't happen, despite MP Julie DeBruzen, a committed, a continued commitment to comedy artists, uh, in her role as an MP in uh, the Toronto area for the Liberal Party. She's a fantastic advocate for artists in general. Um, despite that, nothing changed from a funding standpoint, which is the goal. Uh, mm -hmm. So nothing changed from Canadian Heritage and the Canada Council for the Arts. And so that challenge still remains. So simultaneously, what we had been advised to do and what we were also doing at that time was forming this completely separate not-for-profit corporation called the Foundation for Canadian Comedy, CanCom. So mm -hmm. I eventually stepped down from CASC about two years ago to focus exclusively on CanCom because it was the organization that was going to actually do the funding that was not right. happening anymore. Administer so, the grants or... Yeah. So that's what that's where we have. And that's not publicly funded money. We're not getting any funding from Canadian Heritage or Canada Council. I would love for them to come to the table and be part of the strategic stakeholder partners. Uh, right now, it's private sponsorships from, uh, you know, patrons of the arts, people who believe in that comedy artists should be able to apply as comedy artists for comedy grants at a national level for all the full spectrum of work that comedy artists do. And that's never been done before. So that's where it's at. Uh, the advocacy is going to have to continue. I hope CAS continues doing their lobbying, but CanCom is not about lobbying and advocacy. It's about bringing stakeholders together. So, you know, for instance, on the board, we've got not only someone else who's on the board at CASC with Tom Hill, 
from Blind Tiger Theater in Vancouver, but we've also got Andrew Barnsley, who's the you know executive producer of uh, Son of a Critch and uh, Shit's Creek. So there's different stakeholders that are coming into the mix who really believe in what the foundation is doing for comedy artists. And that that goes across the whole board of comedy, right? It's not just stand-up artists we're talking about. We're talking about sketch comedy artists, people that produce comedy. Um, it really focuses on the, the industry as a whole. Well, absolutely. And even Cask, for instance, recently officially changed their name to represent not just stand-up, but also sketch and improv artists. Uh, we always did when I was on the board. It was open for membership, but it was formed initially because it was a group of stand-up comedians that did it. And CanCom, absolutely 100%, funds Canadian comedy artists, whether you're individual or in a troupe, sketch, improv, stand-up, musical, clown, doesn't matter. Uh, whatever you're doing for comedy, you get to apply as a comedian, which is not possible at any other uh, national funding body. And so, you know, we're really proud of the, of the work that we are doing and the messages that we're getting from artists who even were declined uh, in our inaugural grant process. They were just like, I'm just glad you're doing this. Like, you know, you know, jump cut to five years from now when they still haven't got a grant. We, we might be hearing a little different story. But right now they're very grateful for the work we're doing. And they're I'm sure it. and it's hard. We, we didn't have a huge amount of money, obviously, in, in the inaugural grant stream. And so it was difficult to make a, a selection. Uh, but it's also important to emphasize the fact that not only are we being inclusive of different genres of comedy, we're also really making a concerted effort to represent uh, unrepresented voices in comedy who have not been represented as equal uh, uh, or in equitable ways as other uh, comedy artists across the country and regionally as well. Uh, and so, you know, we put an emphasis on it and, you know, in the inaugural grants, yes, um, four out of the five grant recipients were from Ontario. One was based in Vancouver working in Winnipeg, but that was also a reflection of the, the number of applications we got from the mm -hmm. region. So we've got to do our job to outreach to Atlantic Canada and uh, the territories and the, and the prairie provinces to make sure that comedy artists know that this opportunity exists. So we're, you know, it's a, it's a work in progress. And the representation across, across this great country too. Um, it really fits in with the comedy, Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. You know, our three pillars are to uh, preserve Canadian comedy, uh, of course, to honor people and, and to promote Canadian comedy is the third pillar. And that, that's what that's all about. Getting back to kind of the Hall of Fame and your influ influences. Of course, you do the Adam Grow quiz show now, a lot of corporate events and stuff like that. The Cash Cab is what you're known for, for the hosting. Did you have any hosting influences? Like, I know we talked about comedy influences, but was there any hosts? Because um, you do have a very unique uh, style of hosting a game show and, and the game show obviously lends to that, but you're not the Chuck Woolery type of host, right? We, I mean, you can't really do that in a cab. So did you have any influences for like game show hosts or hosting? Well, it's interesting to me from, from my early days watching television, I always like to note that I thought back in the day that ultimately Bob Barker and Johnny Carson did basically the same thing, mm -hmm. right? That was the same job. They were hosting a show. And yeah. so I didn't really, I wasn't discerning enough as an eight-year-old uh, or a 10-year-old or whatever to, to know that one was a game show and one was, you know, an acclaimed, you know, late night show. And so for me, influences like that really did carry over regardless of what the genre it was necessarily a game show or, um, you know, a comedy show. I just kind of liked different kind of approaches. And I found... Um, as I got, you know, older, I really started to aspire to host things 
and then look at the people that were hosting them as my kind of models. So one of my ultimate dreams was to host the Oscars. And as weird as an artist, I, I didn't even dream of becoming an actor and getting a lead role and getting nominated and winning an Oscar. I dreamed of hosting the Oscars. And so Billy Crystal was huge for me. And uh, he's an example of someone who's got a little bit more versatile portfolio than I do. So you can sometimes get intimidated by someone who's more diverse. Like he can, he's not like a singer, like the point where he's got record albums, but he can carry a tune like yeah. many exceptional sketch artists. I cannot carry a tune to save my life. Uh, and he's also got some sketch and acting chops. He was in a lot of movies, some of them serious, some of them not so serious. And he was on Saturday Night Live. And then, so I looked at other people, Ellen DeGeneres was a big influence. I loved Ellen's tone when she did stand up as well as hosting things. And then even her show, Ellen, before, of course, you know, was thrown into the spotlight for negative reasons, uh, but on screen, her kind of appeal to me, it didn't bother me that she was, you know, really going for what people call the Oprah, you know, you win, you win, like that kind of feel. I, yeah. I really found her toll and her, her tone and her positive energy, at least on the product, was something that I really wanted to emulate. And so more and more, you know, you, you realize when I look back at my influences and then kind of, you know, bring that into the, the, the Canadian echelon, they're just on a per capita basis. There's more and more now that we're creating and even surprisingly during the pandemic, we're churning out quite a bit of content, especially comedy content from Canada mm -hmm. that you can be really proud of. So then I kind of think back about, you know, missed opportunities and, and the artists that I kind of slowly were exposed to just working the trenches in Canadian comedy and then in hosting. And I remember when certain jobs kind of came up and I didn't even get the call from my agent and I had already been in, in, in Cash Cab, like when Big Brother happened, I didn't really like, I wasn't a fan of the show, but Arissa, when she got the hosting job for that, mm -hmm. I thought, what, you know, she is like the energy and the, and what she brings to it, even if I don't like that genre of show, right? you kind of, it's kind of rewarding. And I, I think you need to have a, a certain amount of taste of success yourself to be able to be giving enough and allow yourself to recognize that was extremely well cast. Yeah. And so not be jealous and be like aspired. So like, even though I don't watch a show, I just need to see a clip of her to go, I need to, I need to achieve that eye contact. I need to achieve that energy. I need to achieve the way she deals with people live in the moment, live to tape or whatever it is. And so you kind of start to really take a little bit of a closer look at the people around you that are closer to you as opposed to only the people that are arm's length like I the real you know the realistic likelihood that I would ever host the Oscars it's a nice aspirational thing to think about but really I mean yeah. what how's that going to happen so I started as I get older to look more realistically at other people that I think are exceptional that have a talent base that I don't think I have to find some inspiration from them and Arissa was one of them I, uh, I've been going back and watching a lot of Carson clips. I mean, you can find every Carson interview on YouTube and just speaking of hosting, he didn't have like the, um, those professional hosting tops. Like a lot of times he's interviewing somebody and he's like covering his mouth like this, which like you would net, like I'm, now if a producer saw you like cover your mouth the whole time when you're talking to someone, um, it's just funny how in a way he's, it's almost like you can, you can obviously improve on these skills, but you ought, you, you either have that confidence or you don't, right? Like you just have that, he just had a way about him. And even though 
like things he was doing weren't necessarily uh, kosher for television or for hosting at the time. He still just, I mean, he's probably one of the greatest, he's the, the greatest late night host of all time. So, yeah. And there's something, there's something that you have to recognize whether you're early emerging in your career um, midstream or later that there are some things that you can manufacture and really work on. And there are some things that, you know, that you, you just might not ever be able to bring to the table uh, authentically. Um, and so another comedian that I, that I think about is Deborah DiGiovanni, uh, who's mm-hmm. in LA now. Uh, the first times I saw her on stage at the Laugh Resort, which is no longer, uh, you know, a functioning comedy club, but it was one of the, uh, you know, the development grounds for me anyway. It was the main one, the Laugh Resort at both of its locations in Toronto. The first time I saw comedians like her, like Deb uh, on stage, it's like, wow, I mean, you can't like she, she was just there was naturally something about her in addition to all the work and creativity, you know, like there's just something about certain people. And so if if I kind of have resonated with someone like you or other people have said to me, it's like, wow, you're diversifying, and you really bring something to the table. I, I'm very pleased to hear that because sometimes it's just an acknowledging that I might not have that diverse set or that kind of it thing um, that other people have, but what do I have that I can amplify and elevate? And part of that has to do with, you know, what I, you know, over a decade ago now was just be, my core competency is be, being a host. Just be the best host you can be, which will probably make you one of the best hosts in the country. That's something that's realistic for me. And Mm -hmm. I had to kind of accept that. And I say that proudly because, you know, I I don't have to be shy about it. And I don't think Canadians should be shy. We should be very proud of what we bring to the table. Because at the end of the day, there's a reason why I can be kind of low-key humble at the same time. Because there's, there's no show called Canada's Next Best MC. Or yeah. America's got the best host. Nobody cares, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. Not, it's not a sexy job. Yeah. But when I've done corporate events, or even when I've done stand-up events, and a discerning population of either the audience or the producers come up to me and say, "You know what? You really hosted that exceptionally. Like, you know, that made a big difference." They're not asking me to do a development deal or build a sitcom around me, but there was an appreciation for that. And you just kind of go, "Okay, that's that's what I've got." And so, why not build on that? And I mean, you're getting lots of opportunities now. Again, I went to obviously adamgrow.com to see clips and videos and, and you're hosting. I love your style. And I, hopefully you can get back to this where it's on stage. You have the two people. It's a little bit of, it's a little bit of personal. You're allowed to do that. That little bit of roasting of someone when, when it's yeah. needed, right? Like that little yeah. bit, um, but still deliver a great show. And I, and I love that. Well, I think that for me, that's, that comes back again to being a, a great host and allow the people that are prepared to come on the show and be, you know, contributors to the content, let them breathe a little bit. And I was always amazed, uh, you know, in terms of what Canadian contestants in the cash cap, both in Toronto and in Vancouver brought, you know, and you know, that's to me, the closest to non-scripted reality that still exists to this day. I mean, you know, you're a television watcher, if you watch scripted reality, like, you know, The Bachelor and all that stuff and, you know, whatever, survive. I mean, so much of it is scripted reality, mm. right? There's yeah. a narrative, there's a story they're trying to tell. Um, and aside from it being a game show and there being scripted questions, I mean, I didn't tell those people how to, you know, celebrate, how to quarrel, how to, like, and the, some of the stuff that just random everyday Canadians came up with, I was like, you know, I might have been looking like in camera one, like, you know, like, well, let me give you 
I know that you don't even, you don't care about this, but it'd be like, you know, I do care. Yeah. 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 One of those. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. And um, so for me, it was kind of like those moments are gems. And sometimes that happens at a corporate gig that nobody's going to ever see again, or even remember that I just right. go, Oh, that was, that was beautiful. You can't yeah. write that. And that's why, you know, on some level, I am envious of the improv artists who are just so talented and can bring out those moments. And sure, like anybody else, it's the same with my quiz show. I have some go-to questions, some custom questions, some things that happen in the moment. And I kind of create an environment where I hope something fun happens. And often it does. And likewise for a sketch troupe, I'm sure they have like their magic, you know, list of tricks that's going to yeah. draw out the right answers in their go-to stuff. Fair enough. But a lot of it, you know, you can't fake. I'm always surprised, of course, when people share videos with me, like TikTok videos. And you, Could you believe this? I can't believe that, you know, like some sort of prank. I'm like, that was staged. One, How are you not seeing, you know, yeah. like you can't believe it. Um, but I think that for most people, you can tell when there's a genuinely authentic, funny, poignant, um, moving, inspirational moment. And when that happens with humans, whether it be on camera or on stage or in a comedy environment, it's just, you can't beat it. It's funny because I, uh, the amazing race is like that one show that my parents watch and they will always watch. And then I read, it's like, you know, they're going back and filming stuff. Right. And they're like, don't tell me some people just don't care about that stuff, but you're right. Cash cab had those like authentic moments where you can always tell this is actually happening. This person hailed a cab. You know, it's not the fake surprise when the lights go off. It, it was really real. And I think that's what made it great. Well, I mean, you know, there were moments that because we were a television show, we did have to film again, like if a street yeah. shout out didn't work in the audio. I mean, I was driving around in a minivan that was a cab, but also a mobile television studio right. with about a quarter million dollars worth of camera equipment and, and flashcards. And we were the first in Canada, to, at least to use the flash media to record. So there were always things like um, we need to pull over and fix the cameras again you know it's like as you as as careful as i was and as successful as i was at navigating the streets you know you're still going over a little the littlest bump can you know send things off the uh, and we the crew was really great the production team and the tech team really did we we got a well-oiled machine by the end of it after eight seasons and uh, it's too bad we're not making anymore but um it's been in repeats throughout the pandemic it feels like it's brand new because i'm like it's a whole new fandom for it because people say thank goodness for cash cab i've been locked down for months and it's been like you know i was like okay i'm happy to be there for you it's repeats but any show that where you can play along is great I, I i mean i'm a big trivia fan when i can when it's not a lockdown i go to daft brewing in kingston uh where we play trivia shout out to daft brewing and, and you're still doing trivia do you want to talk about the adam grow quiz show um and what you're doing for corporate events now i mean it's moved to online i got a quick look there at your your home studio, you're, you're all set up. I think you can host hundreds of people, right, on these, maybe even more on these quiz, quiz shows. Yeah, I mean, I think the digital landscape is here to stay, and I'm happy to contribute it, uh, to it, and I'm happy that I've been able to find a, a successful uh, portfolio of clients. And for me, it just ended up being corporate clients still needed to do their outreach and team building and all that stuff. And these platforms existed. It was a matter of uh, assessing and putting together the right toolkit and provide it. And so as much as I love the in-person and can't wait to get back on stage at corporate banquet, hall, banquet halls and conferences and theater venues, um, et cetera, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's just great energy. I think that there's a real uh, business 
uh, case for the long term for the digital audience. So hybrid is kind of the word that uh, people are talking about or digital first is, is kind of the buzzword now. And that is you might present an on um, a conference, uh, but you might instead of having it all in one location, you might have um, you know three or four hubs across Canada. And then there's a small live audience there and then uh, a larger digital audience because there's A, uh, an ability to connect with people who are unable to travel for whatever reason, even if we're outside of a pandemic, uh, cost controls, uh, time schedule, family commitments, many more people can now attend and participate. And then how do you bridge those two audiences, the hub audiences and the digital audiences who are watching from their office or their home. And that's where the toolkit that I've been using exclusively for an online audience in a virtual studio is gonna come into play for the long term. So it's kind of an exciting, another critical juncture in the work that I do that is translating into web series. Uh, I, I've produced a couple of web series and I, I had never produced any web series before the pandemic. Uh, and then all of a sudden I've got a studio at home, which I never had. So now I'm producing web series and making money from content that's not just the corporate market. And now I'm back into pitching shows that I can contribute to from the comfort of my own home. You know, it's kind of like that moment. And even my wife, who's my biggest fan and my biggest supporter, could not relate to the moment when I got paid for my first job from this environment. And, you know, again... I'm in the second floor studio that I built over time and kept, I keep on adding to it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can't believe someone's going to pay me to yeah. work from my second floor office. <laughs> yeah, for You know, it was like a kid. In the, it was like getting the first radio job. It didn't yeah. matter how much it was like, I can't believe this is amazing. You know? Yeah. And so that excitement, I want to carry over into the digital first environment. So there may be some times that I am performing in person and I love it and that interaction with people, but it's also going to be able to simultaneously communicate to a digital audience who are, are not there and how to bring them together and comes back to that, that toolkit that you have. Yeah. Whether it be from, you know, the live, the, you know, the live comedy trenches and the live radio um, really, you know, and, and live television. I've done live television, unscripted, you know, no teleprompter, four cameras, director in my ear, all of that stuff kind of contributes to your ability to deliver in the moment. It's uh, it's one of those positive things that that has come out of this pandemic, right? The, the, the flexibility, the different media forms. I was talking to Rob Cohen uh, last week. He is was a writer on The Simpsons and he's worked on The Wonder Years and The Big Bang Theory. And and he's doing web series now with with Dana Gold, um, which is super cool to see. Like somebody that is like, yeah, I could do it from home, you know, like work on these shows from home where he, he didn't have that option before. So so it's awesome. Um, thanks a lot for coming on, Adam. I, I really appreciate your stories and I appreciate what you're doing uh, for Canadian comedy and for Canadian comedy artists across the country. Um, again, it's adamgrow.com, uh, the Adam Grow quiz show, corporate events, highly recommend. Um, all you have to do is go on, on your website and look at those videos and you know that, uh, yeah, the, the quiz show would be, would be fun for any, any corporate corporation, business, big or small. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for, uh, directing them to my website and promoting what I'm, what I'm offering and thanks to you and the rest of the comedy hall of fame for doing what you've done to create this much needed and long overdue opportunity. And I know that you're supporting the, the board and Tim and everybody else that uh, have put this together, but we're really excited about what the hall is doing for Canadian comedy artists in the long term as well. Great. Thanks, Adam. Okay. Cheers. Many thanks once again to Adam Grow. Don't forget, check him out, adamgrow.com, the Adam Grow quiz show. And like you said, Cash Cab is always in syndication. I love trivia. Trivia is just the greatest. So every time I see it on, 
TV. I'm always, I'm always firing up Cash Cap. Got some Canadian comedy news for you. Amazon just announced, Amazon Prime, the Kids in the Hall, they're coming out with a two-part documentary series, which will be really cool. Of course, the Canadian iconic sketch show, Kids in the Hall. Maybe some of those members will get into the Hall of Fame, the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame this year. And you can have your say on who gets in. Don't forget, CanadianComedyHall.com is where to go. And check us out on all our social medias, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere. Make sure to follow the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. Thanks once again to Joel Cohen. Joel gave me some time, uh, you know, while he was in the middle of doing Simpsons stuff, and that was that was really really cool. Also, Adam Grow, Adam, amazing dude. What he's doing for Canadian comedy is absolutely great. So it was a lot of fun. It was a big show. I mentioned Kids in the Hall documentary on Amazon Prime. I'm gonna have more Amazon Prime related stuff on next week's episode. Um, so stay tuned for that. Have a good week. For the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame podcast, I'm Chad Noonan.